for Adventure Week this week with the uh, kids at, at the church. My role was to help with recreation. So out on the lawn, we played games with each group as they circled around, and we quickly gravitated towards water balloons because it was so hot. So we found every possible way to throw water balloons at each other. Had I planned well for today, I would have given you a water balloon as you came in, and then just throughout the service to cool each other down. You could have thrown them sideways. You could have, I would have gladly received them, thrown at me to cool us down as well. So maybe next year, we'll incorporate water balloons on the Sunday after Adventure Week as we sweat together. You know, once your reality in this life is disappointment, where situations come up in our lives where things aren't now or don't turn out in the ways that we had hoped. Perhaps for you, you experienced that as you were excited to go to college. You'd heard people talk about how great college is, but you arrived at college, and honestly, the first few weeks and months, it wasn't an enjoyable time. It was hard to make friends. The classes were frustrating and confusing. You found yourself disappointed. This isn't what I thought it would be. Maybe it was for you in marriage. You were excited for marriage. You stood up here perhaps blissfully in love for marriage, but then you got into it and you found out the reality of two sinners, even two sinners saved by grace, living all of life together is typically challenging. It's hard. You face disappointment. Maybe you longed for being a parent. And then God blessed you with a child, but you found out parenting was exhausting. Frustrating, difficult in so many ways, and you were disappointed by life. Or perhaps it is you desire to be married. And so far, at least in life, that has not been your opportunity. Or you so desire to be a parent, and so far in life, or in life, you have not received the gift of children. So you find yourself disappointed. Disillusionment. And often, if we're honest, we're not simply disappointed in general. We're often disappointed with God. And our disappointment with God often leads to doubts about God. Is God good? Does God love you? Does God even exist? I wonder if you can identify with any of those disappointments or the pain of doubt. And today we'll see in the Bible a key player in the entire story of the Bible face deep disappointment, disillusionment, and doubt. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew 11. Today we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew, so you'll find Matthew 11 in the Bibles near you we provided on page 816. Page 816. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app just so you can see the text right in front of you. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers, so we're in chapter 11. And the smaller ones are the verse numbers. I'll mention those throughout our time, but we'll begin in verse 1. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift and so following the service in the back of the room, there's a table, a stack of Bibles there. So following the service, please just grab one of those and take it with you as you go. So Matthew 11, beginning in verse 1. 
When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This morning in our passage, we see this emphasis. Keep trusting in Jesus the King. Even as you face questions, doubts, and disappointments in life. And look at our passage by looking at three questions. First, can you see? Second, are you listening? And third, what do you require? And the first will be the longest of the three. So first, can you see? In verses 1 through 6. We've seen in the previous chapter that Jesus was preparing his disciples to send them out and also preparing them uh, for opposition that they would face. And now Jesus resumes his ministry of preaching and teaching across the region. And then the scene shifts to the one we call John the Baptist. He's the cousin of Jesus who had the key role of being the one preparing the way just before Jesus the Messiah by calling the people of God to repentance. So John had a very uh, substantial ministry. Many people came out to hear his preaching because he preached unlike others with with power and authority, but also with a a strictness as he called people to turn back to God. And John was baptizing people as a sign of their repentance, and Jesus himself came to John and was baptized by him. And so John saw through his ministry and the coming of Jesus, he saw Jesus and he understood Jesus and he he knew that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one of God, the anointed one that, that God had been telling his people for generations would come and finally deliver them. 
Now later, John had been imprisoned by Herod. That's where we find him now in our text. We'll see more of his story later in Matthew 14. So at this point, John has been in prison for a while. And notice today John's reaction to the ongoing ministry of Jesus. Look down at verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one to come? Or should we look for another? So evidently, somehow in prison, reports are making their way to John, telling what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is saying. But notice that apparently John now has some doubts. Previously, he'd been confident, sure, that Jesus is the one. Now he's not so sure. So from prison, he sends some of his disciples, go and ask Jesus, are you the one? Or is there another one? coming. So at one point in time, John was certain about the identity of Jesus. Now he has questions. Now he has doubts. Why? Why did John find himself questioning? Why did he find himself doubting? Well, there are several contributing factors. It's likely because Jesus wasn't doing all the things that John thought he was going to do. And the things that Jesus was doing, he was not doing it perhaps at the pace that John desired. Jesus was announcing the coming of his kingdom of grace and of mercy, but but Jesus was not announcing judgment in the way that John thought that he would or that he should. John was hoping for Messiah to come and bring radical transformation, radical nationwide repentance immediately. But the plan of Jesus was looking different than John had thought different than what he had hoped. And the timing was far different from what John had imagined. And personally, John was facing difficult circumstances. He's now in prison. I mean, he played this key role, the forerunner before Jesus, but now he's locked up in jail. So the combination of those led to disappointment for John, which then fueled doubt. So he sends his messengers to Jesus, and friends, notice Jesus' response. It's important that we see that Jesus did not scold John for the question. He didn't shame him. He didn't send John's disciples, say, go back and tell John he should know better. That's not what Jesus did. But notice Jesus' answer. Look down at verse 4. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So Jesus says, go and tell John of these miracles, of the power that is being demonstrated. For instance, the blind receiving sight, which across the Old Testament, we don't see any blind people healed. Outside of Jesus in the New Testament, no blind people are healed. But in Jesus' ministry, this unique miracle was his most common one. And this was to be a sign of the power of the Messiah. Much less he's healing the leper, raising the dead. So in these words, Jesus is pointing them to say, go and tell John what is happening, what is seeing. But he's also pointing John back to the scriptures. 
For these miracles that Jesus were doing were not just random miracles that he's choosing to do, but Jesus was choosing specific miracles that were authenticators based on the scriptures saying this is what only the Messiah would do. For across the Old Testament, it pointed ahead saying this is what the Messiah, the Christ, would be like. And so Jesus is doing those things, and he's saying, tell John I'm doing those things, and it should click in John's mind because John knows God's word, that he should see, oh, yes, Jesus is the promised one. In the Gospel of Luke, we have this uh, moment at the beginning. In Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is about to begin his ministry, and Jesus is in the synagogue, and Jesus is invited, as was normally the custom, to, to read from a scroll. And he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And the readers were given the freedom to read anywhere in the scroll that they wanted to. So Jesus takes the scroll, and he comes to, intentionally chooses Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. And here's how Luke records it, Luke chapter 4. Jesus stands up and reads, and here's what the text says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So this was a dramatic moment in the synagogue. Jesus intentionally goes to this text they know is about the anointed one, the Messiah. Jesus reads it, and then he says, today, this is starting with me, an audacious claim. Jesus was saying, this is why he came. But it's notable, as Jesus reads in Isaiah 61, where Jesus reads and where he stops. For if you were to go to Isaiah 61 and you were to read it yourself, you would find that as Jesus read it, he stopped in one particular place. He stopped right after he reads, he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Stops there, rolls it up. Had he kept reading, the next phrase says this, and the day of vengeance of our God. So Jesus intentionally reads of the Lord's favor, but does not read of vengeance, of judgment. So when Jesus read that, he was saying something. This was not a mistake. He intentionally reads in that way because in this coming of Jesus, he came to declare grace and mercy. He came to bring favor, salvation. It was not yet time for vengeance, for judgment. That comes when Christ returns. So this was not intended to be in one moment in Jesus' earthly ministry, but, but first, favor, in the future, there's judgment, and John is confused and frustrated. Because John knows Isaiah 61. And in his mind, when the Messiah would come, he would do both. Declare favor and declare judgment in this one coming. And Jesus is saying, that was never the plan. John, you're frustrated and disappointed, but that was never the plan that God had. Grace and blessing now, judgment delayed, but judgment will come. So John didn't fully understand. The timing of Jesus was different than what he had expected, and John himself was suffering. And as a result, questions and doubts. And friend, if you're a Christian, and if you follow Jesus for very long, you will face disappointments in life. 
And the vast majority of us will, at times in life, face doubts. Sometimes doubts come when God's plan honestly looks different than what we thought or hoped. Maybe you begin to follow Christ for a while and you find it's harder or costly than you ever imagined. Sometimes doubts come when God's timing is different than what we had thought or hoped. We had hoped, we would prayed that, that God would act sooner. I mean, perhaps now you've been praying and waiting, but the waiting hasn't ended. The waiting continues. And, and honestly, deep down, doubts are growing. Because you've been praying and waiting for God to come through, waiting for an answer to that prayer, waiting for a job, and, and yet no job yet. Waiting for, for progress to be made in the fight against sin in your own life. You, you so want to make progress, but it feels like no progress is coming. You, you perhaps long to be married. You're waiting for a spouse, or you're waiting for children, or you're waiting for the salvation of some who you love so much. And this waiting has led to disappointment. And the disappointment has grown into doubts. And add to that, sometimes you find yourself in your own personal suffering. The very real suffering that you endure or those who you love most endure, and that too fuels doubts. And friend, if you have doubts today or you face doubts in the future, know that you are in good company. You're in good company with Jesus' own cousin, this unique, special prophet of God. He, too, had doubts. And just as a, as a brief side note, I would say this also points to the authenticity of the Bible. Because if you were making up a story that you wanted to find believable, you likely wouldn't have this key kind of forerunner doubting the hero of the story. It, it doesn't fuel the faithfulness, it sounds like, of the story. So why is this recorded? Because this is what really happened. Because the Bible isn't made up. It is authentic. And friend, if you have doubts today or when you have doubts in the future, friend, the good news is you don't have to worry that Jesus is going to condemn you nor crush you. For notice, Jesus did not dismiss John's doubts. He didn't shame John. He spoke in a way desiring to help and encourage and meet John in those doubts. So friends, doubts are not unusual. They're normal. But they're also something we do want to address when they come. And so friends, I think we can be helped today in our doubts. We can help one another in our doubts when we look at our text today. And so friends, first notice that in his doubts, Jesus, or John, comes to Jesus. In his doubts, John comes to Jesus. So, so he has these doubts in prison, but he doesn't say, forget Jesus. He doesn't say, I'm just going to solve this on my own. He goes to Jesus, and he does it by sending his disciples, go and ask. And friends, so it is for us when we face doubts. The temptation can be to just reject Jesus, to pull back from Jesus. But friends, we want to go to Jesus, and the way we do it now primarily is through the scriptures and with God's people in the church. And friends, notice what Jesus does for John. He points John to the scriptures. He takes him right to Isaiah 61. 
And so, friends, in our doubts, we want to be a people who want to continue to look to God's word. God's word is not always easy to understand. It takes work to understand and interpret our life in light of that. So the temptation is to pull away from God's word. But instead, as Jesus pointed John, we want to draw into God's word, not pull away. So friend, in your doubt, don't displace God's word from a center in your life. John also had others to help him. He has disciples with him to help him in his doubts. That friend, so for you. In doubt, it is so tempting to isolate, to pull yourself away. What will these other people think if they know about my questions and doubts? Will, will they condemn me? Do they understand? I'm truly the only one who's ever had these thoughts, and the temptation is to pull away. Friend, don't do that. Instead, draw near, stay with God's people. In your doubts, let them bear this burden with you. Let them serve and love you. Sometimes their faith may carry you when your faith is weak. Jesus also says to John, John, look around. Look look at the, the miracles that Jesus is doing. And we say the same. Look at the miracles of lives changed by the gospel. Transformed people authenticating the work of Christ. And we'd also want to be careful on our own, of our own preconceived ideas that we impose on Jesus, and then when he doesn't meet them, then we're disappointed with him, but we're disappointed in something he never promised to do. So it's worth examining, like, did Jesus really promise me this, or am I just saying that I deserve it? And so often... We face the question of, will I trust Jesus' timing? Because so often in life, God's timing is slower than ours. And often, much slower than ours. Probably all of you have at least watched the 4th of July fireworks in Boston, and most of you have probably been in person. And so you go down and you watch it, and and you know the the last song that the pops play is the the, uh, 1812 overture, right? It's this this moving, long song, and at the end of it, they fire off the cannons, and then a few fireworks go off, but just a few. But imagine if you went for the very first time, you sat all day, you you sweated, you know, you you waited and waited for the show, and the 1812 overture goes along, you're like, oh, pumped up for that, the cannons go off, the fireworks go off for like... 30 seconds. And you're like, wait, that's it? Like, I mean, I sweated all day sitting down here with all these strangers in really close proximity, and that's it? Well, hopefully someone before you walked away would turn to you and say, no, 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 not yet. That's not the end. That's just the beginning. So wait, there's more fireworks coming. If you wait about another 20 minutes, the sky will be filled with fireworks. And friends, the Christian life is very often Not yet. Not yet. Often it's in this life that we wait, and it's not yet. But also much of the Christian life, we live in this already not yet, where much won't be realized in this life. It's the not yet of the life to come. And so often we're disappointed, and it leads to doubt, because God is not working at the time that we have in mind. And friend, as you have doubts, let me also encourage you to question or to doubt your own doubts. 
For often when we have doubts, we give the, the doubt sort of ultimate authority. They go unquestioned, but then we leverage the doubts to question everything else in life. The doubts get authority over our faith. We question our faith, but we don't actually hold our doubt up to examination. So with at least the same authority, you should go with the doubt and question, examine, doubt your doubts. And friend, if you have doubts and questions, a couple of books on the book table I would commend to you. One book called Help My Unbelief by Barnabas Piper is a really helpful book on the topic. Uh, another book, if you're just thinking about Jesus, is he who the Bible says, it's called What is Jesus? Those two books are up there. If you have money, you could pay for them. If not, please just take it. We'd love for you to take it. If you will read it, we would commend those books to you. And friend, if you're not a Christian, we want you to know that the reality of the Christian life, I hope you see, is that, that we're not a bunch of people who never have questions, who never have doubts. We're not a people who, who reject our minds. No, we're a thinking people. And as we think, sometimes we have disappointment. Sometimes we do have doubts. But friend, we also want you to see that Jesus, he is the one. He is the one who brings now spiritual sight to those who once were spiritually blind. He brings spiritual life to those who were once spiritually dead. And for we invite you to come with your doubts and explore Jesus. Jesus' concluding word in verse, five, in verse 6, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So blessed is the one who considers Christ and, and doesn't reject him, doesn't let his preconceived ideas overwhelm him, but trusts in Christ by faith. So friend, Jesus gives us spiritual sight. So I wonder, do you see? Then second, we see the question, are you listening? In verses 7 through 15, after John's messengers depart, Jesus then turns to the crowd and, and talks with them about John. For, for many of them had gone out to hear John as the masses followed. And he asked them, why did you go hear John? Did you go out to see him because he was a reed, like a, a reed blown by the wind? Meaning, was, was he fickle? And that, that wasn't true of John. Did they go out to see John because he wore this elaborate soft clothing that, that you might see in a king's house, in a palace? And no, John's attire was not impressive. And Jesus says, no, you went out to see him because he's a prophet. And Jesus says, and that's what John was, but Jesus says this, but not just any prophet. In fact, he's the greatest of all the prophets. The greatest of all those born of women. Of those naturally born, there is none greater than John, Jesus says. Now, this is an impressive statement, and it's true for a couple of reasons. One, John was a prophet who had been prophesied of. There were numerous prophets across the Old Testament, but John is one the other prophets actually talked about. So, for instance, in our text, there's a quote from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, a prophet talking about John, the prophet. And second of all, John was different than the rest because he was the last one. He's the only prophet who stood there and saw Jesus. He's the only prophet who stood there and actually touched Jesus as he baptized him. So that's why John has place among all the others. He points to Jesus and says, he is the one. He is the Messiah. So John is special, but notice what Jesus says, verse 11. Yet, the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John's the greatest man there's ever been, but everyone who's born again through faith in Christ, is greater than him. Now, this is not intended to somehow diminish John, but it is to say the beauty, the, the blessing, the privilege of being brought into the kingdom of Jesus. For John himself would die, 
trusting in Christ before Christ's death and resurrection, but now we live on this side, and we look back, and we, in fact, see things much more clearly than John. We look back and we see the cross. We see the resurrection, and now all the scriptures come into focus much more clearly than us because of the cross and the resurrection. Verse 12, then Jesus speaks of the opposition of this message. The kingdom faced opposition from the days of John, continuing and always until the last day. Jesus then asks, if they and we are truly listening, look at verse 15. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So friend, what about you? Are you listening to the witness of John? John, the the one who doubts, still is the one who says, Jesus is the one. Are you listening to Jesus as he speaks of the uniqueness of his kingdom? Let us listen with spiritual ears. And then third, the third question, what do you require? Or what are you requiring or demanding of Jesus? Verses 16 through 19. Jesus then seeks to illustrate what, what the generation that he was a part of, and and really every generation, was like. How do they respond to Jesus? And apparently there were a couple of common games that the kids would play in the marketplace. One of them was the game of wedding, so it was a celebration. The other game was a game of funerals, so they're play-acting a funeral, so there was a dirge that was played. So typically, you know, there would be one kid who would choose the game, or likely, like it was our family, the older kids chose the game, everybody played what the older kids wanted to. But notice, the kids who are playing the game are unhappy. So the kids who are leading, they're saying, look, we played the flute to dance for the wedding game, but you didn't want to dance. And then we played a dirge, but you didn't want to play that either. So they're basically saying, what do you guys want? You don't like either game. You just want to do your own thing. You want to make up your own rules. You want to make up your own game. Instead of playing this one, they just weren't satisfied. And Jesus is saying, this is what the people are like who were rejecting him. As they rejected both John and Jesus. He alludes to John who came fasting, abstaining, and they rejected John. They were opposed to John. Jesus comes eating, sharing meals with tax collectors and sinners, and they reject Jesus as well. So they said, we don't want either one of them. Neither John nor Jesus, they were not satisfied. And we're so often, this is the response of us, of people today. We don't want God's way, we want our own way. We might want some pieces of Christianity, but we want to mix that with some of our own worldview, a couple other things, and, and make it our own. And friends, the fact is, Christianity says some things that are hard for us and often that we reject. So for one, one, Christianity says of all of us that we're all sinners, separated from God by our own rebellion. The Bible says, actually, we're worse off, we're worse internally than we would ever want to imagine. And many people reject Christianity at that point. Why would I want a message that says, I'm in need of salvation outside of myself? But in addition to that, the Bible also says there is a Savior, Jesus Christ, who has come. And he's come to deliver sinners from the the, the wages, the the payment that we deserve because of our rebellion. And very importantly, Jesus has purchased this salvation through his sacrificial death, the sinless son of God on a cross in a place of sinners like us. He died, was buried, was raised triumphant on the third day, 
conquering Satan, sin, and death, to provide salvation, very importantly, only as a gift received by faith. It is only grace. And you can only receive it if you understand that it is a free gift of grace. You can't partially receive it and try to earn it. You can't receive it and try to pay it off. And just as the idea that we're sinners is offensive, the idea of grace is scandalous as well. Because often we think it's just too good to be true. It's just too good to be true that it's just a free gift received by faith. And so we say, I don't want that. I reject Jesus. Maybe we take a little bit of Jesus' ethics, but we won't trust in him. So many of us reject him. And we end up with a religion of our own making that might use some terms of Christianity, but is actually far from what the Bible says. The kids in the marketplace were skeptics. My friends, the good news is Jesus welcomes skeptics. If you're a skeptic of Christianity, we want you to feel welcomed here. We want you to feel welcome to come and explore and to ask questions and to wrestle with this. As you know, that no question you ask will be offensive to us. No, no question is off limits. Jesus welcomes skeptics. But I also want to encourage you, perhaps caution you, that, that it's possible for a skeptic to become a hardened skeptic who's no longer open to outside inputs or influences. And it's an easy road to end up there. Over the years, I've seen this happen numerous times. There's a guy probably over 10 years ago, came to Hope, we became friends, and we spent hours just meeting regularly, drinking coffee, and reading the Bible, answering questions that he raised, trying to address objections. And numerous times I walked away thinking, oh, I think he's so close to belief, praying that he would come to know the grace of God. But after months and months and months, I noticed a change where his questions seemed sort of colder, and it felt like no matter how many questions we answered, he would say, no, just one more. And the next week we would tackle that. And he'd say, no, just one more. And the time it became clear, he was no longer sadly interested, no longer open, no longer curious. His skepticism had hardened. And sadly, as far as I know, he's still, no long, he's still not trusting in Christ. He's never come to faith in Christ. So for anyone to know, if you're a skeptic, you're welcomed here. We also want to pray. We invite you to pray as well that God would give you an open heart to really consider, to, to wrestle with who Jesus is. Friends, there's good news for skeptics and doubters. But there's hope for the disappointed and the disillusioned. That hope is found in Christ. And draw near to him today. In moments we sing, turn whatever faith you have towards God in song. Draw near to God's people and to his word.